Support. Support. Support for this podcast is brought to you by the, the Kellogg Innovation Entrepreneurship Initiative. Think bravely. Think differently. Think collaboratively. My first client was a company that we had tried to buy when I was at BMO. And interestingly, when dot-com collapsed, they lost about half of their revenue, like right away. They went from about 10 million in monthly revenue to about four overnight. And about a year later, when the dust was sort of settling, the CEO called me back and he said, you know, I, I, I was worth $40 million and now I'm not and I want to be again, so let's figure out what I can do. Hello and welcome to My Startup Journey, a show where we interview Northwestern entrepreneurs, builders, visionaries, and classmates. Today we're talking to investor, wife, mother, and professor of New Venture Launch, Karen O'Connor. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Instead of hearing from a current Kellogg startup, we're going to hear from a professor in the Kellogg Innovation and Entrepreneurship Initiative, or KEY, department. She teaches New Venture Launch, which is the last in the three-part series, starting with New Venture Discovery, New Venture Development, and then New Venture Launch. But she's always had roots to Kellogg. I grew up in southern Illinois, in Carbondale, which is uh, about 350 miles south of here. My dad was a um, marketing professor at Southern Illinois University. He actually got his PhD from Kellogg before it was named Kellogg. So I was born in Evanston while he was a student. You know, Carbondale is a fairly small town, about 30,000 people in total, though it's the largest town in Southern Illinois, which kind of gives you a little bit of perspective of you know, what that part of the state is like, very different than here. The neat thing about Carbondale is that because of the university, it attracts people really from all over the world. And so we had a very interesting group of teachers, um, you know, lots of them getting advanced degrees at the university, you know, coming from um, backgrounds all over the U.S. as well as uh, international. And a lot of students whose parents were faculty at the university who had very different backgrounds as well. So it was kind of a neat mix of folks in a small town. How big was, do you remember the population at all? Oh, uh, about 30,000, I'm guessing. It was never clear how they counted the students because the students, um, there were at that time about 20,000 students at SIU. So very dominant, the university, in terms of the community down there. What got you interested in business? You know, I never really knew what I wanted to do. You know, like a lot of kids, I didn't know enough about anything to really have much of an opinion. Um, I actually started my undergraduate career as a German major because I had taken German all four years in high school, mainly because the group did a trip to Germany and I really wanted to go to Europe, so I figured that was a way for me to do that. Uh, so I liked the subject, I was good at it, and when I started at U of I, I declared a German major. Um, and enjoyed it, but halfway through my freshman year, I started thinking, well, what am I gonna do with this? I don't want to teach. So um, I started exploring different options. And at that time at U of I, there was a liberal arts degree in finance. You could either be a business major or a liberal arts major and get this degree in finance. And because I'd started in liberal arts and I wanted to continue with my German and some other things, I thought, well, maybe I'll do this. So I did, and it enabled me to take classes in the business college. So I had a very eclectic mix of coursework as an undergrad. 
One of the classes I took was a class called U.S. Banking Practice, and it was taught by the president of one of the local banks in Champaign. So he would come into class with all these little war stories about what was going on at the bank and customers doing this and that, and they dealt mainly with um, you know kind of mid-market and smaller businesses. So interesting stories about the, the types of things they encountered as bankers, and I thought, well, this guy's having fun. And I'd heard that the big banks had great training programs, so I figured since I didn't know how to do anything, this would be a good option for me, would be to interview with banks and get into a training program so I could learn how to do something. So I did, and I ended up at the Continental Bank uh, here in Chicago, which at the time was the largest bank in the city. And uh, you know, got into their training program, and you know, that was how I started my investing career. Wow. Yeah, so it was a little bit of serendipity. Did you meet your husband already? So my husband and I met in college. We had a class together. Um, we don't remember which one it was. He claims it was tax, but it couldn't have been because he graduated a year ahead of me and I took tax as a senior, so he's wrong. But we don't know which one it was. Uh, and then he ended up, we didn't really know each other well. We just would chat during class. He graduated and started working for the Federal Reserve Bank. And I graduated a year later and was at Continental. And about four years after that, he left the Fed and came to Continental to be in the training program. So he recognized me, kind of seeing me in the hallway. I didn't recognize him, to be honest, but, you know, anyway. Um, so he kind of approached me at the ATM, and we started chatting, and I asked him out after that. So, um, But he was junior to me at the bank, so that was kind of a funny thing, too. And we had this sort of secret dating relationship for a while. Um, which was sort of fun, a little cloak and dagger action. That's cute. How would you, yeah. how would you write each other notes, or would you do it at work, or just not even? No, we didn't really talk much at work. You know, we would go out after work, and we had a lot of friends in common. So I think our friends sort of knew we were dating, but they had rules. You couldn't marry someone who was in the same department as you, at that time. But you could date. In theory, you could date, but you couldn't get married. And so we decided it was probably better that we didn't say very much but eventually you know our boss found out and it there was was not a problem with it and then i took a leave of absence to go to kellogg so that sort of solved the problem wow yeah it's a strong financial family <laughs> i don't know about that but yeah very some cool. similarity in our backgrounds right after kellogg i was at accenture for a year which was a terrible fit for me i joined their strategy practice which was brand new and they were trying something that they did not have much experience with, which was hiring people from the outside at anything other than entry level. So I was hired in as a senior, and there, there was a whole group of us that came with business experience and MBAs, and then they hired in at the manager level as well. Uh, but the partners were all sort of lifers, out of Accenture, and very focused on the information technology practice. So there was sort of a clash there in terms of style. Um, and I spent a year there, which was painful in a lot of ways, but I'll tell you, I learned so much that I didn't appreciate until much later. And even now, I'll be working on projects and there's an IT component, and I, I'm amazed at how much I can pull from that, that short time that I had there. So after Accenture, what did you do? So I you know, consider myself an investor. And I've pretty much always been in investment-related jobs. Um, when I was at Kellogg, I had done part-time work in uh, Continental's venture capital company. 
and, and really went to business school because I wanted to segue from doing primarily debt investing into uh, early stage equity investing. So after Accenture, I worked really hard to get myself into an early stage equity investment role and I ended up with a firm uh, called Link Capital, which primarily looked at early stage healthcare, um, both provider as well as life science businesses. And we provided financing for their equipment in addition to smaller amounts of equity co-invest and we took warrants as part of our, of our debt deal. So it was a great job for me because it combined uh, my experience in debt and leasing, which is something I knew and could bring value uh, immediately with sort of working with these high growth VC backed healthcare companies. Now, are you, are you particular about specific industries? Or is it just kind of agnostic for you? Yeah, so I've, I've specialized in various industries at different points in time, which means I consider myself more of a generalist. I know a little bit about a lot of things, and that's part of what I love about being an investor because I love learning about new industries. So that's, that's the fun of it for me. Um, right now I'm looking at a deal that's in fintech, and so I'm learning about the insurance industry, which I know very little about. But that's part of the fun as far as I'm concerned. So I've been a specialist, but for short periods and not always in the same area. You know, there are disruptive things happening in many different industries, but um, you know, back in the healthcare days, we were doing a lot with biotech. So this was in the 90s, and biotech was a very hot area, and there were a lot of companies um, doing IPOs and that kind of thing, raising lots of different, different kinds of capital. Um, and one of the ones that we looked at early on was turned into the Human Genome Project, which is pretty cool. And that was such a foreign idea that you could map the entire human genome at, at that point. Uh, and there was a privately funded company working on that problem as well as one that was being funded by NIH. And I think later on they merged both of those projects. But really big stuff. So how'd you get from Link then to Hyde Park? Well, I've had um, several different investment roles in between, primarily with institutions. Uh, I started a uh, growth equity investment group, co-founded uh, for a Japanese bank here in town. We were looking primarily at growth stage and small buyout opportunities. And then my last institutional role was at BMO, where I was part of the buyout team. So a little bit different from the growth investing that I had done previously, uh, looking at, at bigger, though not huge, but bigger buyouts that involved a lot of um, creative financing. So it was fun. It was not, you know, it was not for me. And part of the reason I joined them was that the senior partner there was interested in doing more growth investing. So he and I were sort of looking at opportunities for the bank to get involved there. Um, and then unfortunately he left and all of that kind of went away and that was right about the time we adopted our daughter. So it worked out great for me. Um, and at that point I started doing mainly consulting. My first client was a company that we had tried to buy when I was at BMO. We came very close to getting a deal done. And interestingly when dot-com collapsed, they lost about half of their revenue like right away. They went from about 10 million in monthly revenue to about four overnight. Uh, interestingly managed to stay above break-even. They had not grown out overhead. They had been planning to, but they hadn't done it. And so, you know, they managed to keep their head above water. And about a year later, when the dust was sort of settling, the CEO called me back. We'd kind of hit it off during due diligence. And he said, you know, I, I 
I was worth $40 million and now I'm not and I want to be again, so let's figure out what I can do. And so he became my first client at Perimeter Advisors and we worked um, primarily on M&A opportunities for him to go out and acquire uh, you know, complementary businesses. But that was, was a lot of fun and that kept me busy uh, while being flexible you know, as my daughter was really small. And then uh, I got invited to a Hyde Park Angels meeting in 2009 by my good friend Ellen Carnahan, who is just a, an amazing technology investor, has been in that field for many years. And she said, oh, you'll like this. It's like the kind of early stage investing we used to do, and it'll be fun for you. So I went to the meeting, and she was right. It was really fun. I kind of got pulled in pretty much immediately and uh, got very active as a member, started investing in some of the deals, uh, working on diligence, helping with some of the portfolio companies. And about two years later, the Hyde Park Angels board asked me to take on a management role and help run the group. So, um, so I did that. It was a half-time job and uh, did that for about three years, which was a lot of fun. So I actually had some free time and was starting to think about you know, what I wanted to do next. So I was having a lot of conversations and happened to call Linda Dara. Happened to be the same week that she had just heard from Tom Parkinson who had been teaching New Venture Launch that he was moving out of Chicago. And so she was you know, needed to find someone to take the class on. So the timing worked really well and she said, well I was just thinking about calling you and I had just called her and so this all kind of fell into place. No, I love Professor Dara. She's, yeah, she's me too. amazing. I've known her for many years. How did you first meet her? Linda uh, was at an organization called the Women's Business Development Center. And this would have been, I want to say sort of late 90s, dot-com kind of days. Um, and the Women's Business Development Center is, is still around and their focus is obviously on empowering women business owners. A lot of them are small business owners and Linda's mandate there was to really create a program around high growth women businesses. So she did that and she would pull these companies in and coach them and then every once in a while, I don't think it was even a regular thing, she would do sort of a pitch day and have three or four of these women entrepreneurs pitch, not so much for money, but it was more for mentoring and advice. And she started inviting me to these. I don't even know how she, she found my name or who kind of put the things together, but I would go to these pitch events that she would run. And that was how I first met her. And then, you know, kind of followed her career because she came to Kellogg after that. And of course I was an alum, so I was a little bit involved with some of the activities there. And then she was at Booth, and later on, when I was part of the Hyde Park Angels team, I worked with her there, and then she came back to Kellogg. So, you know, we've sort of crossed paths several different times. When we return, Professor O'Connor tells us what it's like to run New Venture Launch, what she notices about her students, Kellogg startups, and what advice she has for all of us. Stay tuned. Try My UI is an online tool to have real users test your site. You put in a goal and watch as user clicks, double clicks, and moves throughout your site. Great way to fail fast for free at trymyui.com backslash edu backslash northwestern.edu. Hey, if you're an entrepreneur or working for a startup and you're looking to grow your business, stay organized, or help with presentations, 
you should probably listen right now. In this segment, we call this Entrepreneur Tools, and it's a chance for me to tell you about some cool tools that can help you do all that. So today we're going to be talking about P-Timer Plus. I've been told that I'm very good at giving presentations, and the key to it is, is to practice so meticulously that you know exactly what word you're going to say at which second on which slide. Now, when I used to use my phone as a timer, the problem with it was that I had to remember exactly which second I needed to be on during my presentation. But with P-Timer Plus, not only do I have a countdown timer, but I can designate segments by color. This allows me to visually know where am I, where do I need to be, and how much time do I have left. So for instance, I can say I have 59 seconds for slide one, 25 seconds for slide two, 23 seconds for slide three, and it shows me that all with different colors. This allowed me to stay on top of my game and allowed me to give presentations seamlessly. Check it out, download P-Timer Plus on the App Store and on Android too. It's a great way to help you polish your pitches and presentations. And now back to the show. Welcome back. So Professor Connor has worked for Accenture investment firms and worked with several Booth students while at Hyde Park Angels. She also mentioned having a good relationship with Professor Linda Darrow. Serendipitously, they were both about to call each other and when they talked, Professor Darrow said she was in need of a teacher for a new venture launch. She asked Professor O'Connor if she would be interested. So when she gave you the call, or I guess when you called her and you had this discussion, she said, hey, so what do you think about running new venture launch? What was your, what did you feel? Oh, I was excited. I thought it would be fun. You know, it combines a number of things that I like to do, learning about startup companies, you know, helping coach, Obviously, I did a lot of that with HPA, so I had some experience and felt I could add value there. And then the working with the students part, which I just, I, you know, just find very invigorating. And so you've been teaching this course for how long? Three years? So I've taught it three times. So I taught it in the spring of 2016, and then the fall, and then this past spring. So I've taught it three times. So what, what are some of the coolest companies that you remember? You know, I, I don't want to pick favorites because I don't really have favorites. Uh, but some of the companies that I've worked with are, you know, have kind of gone on or sort of moving on. Um, the first group I had, and fortunately he was just not able to pull all the pieces together at the same time. The pieces came together but not at the same time, which was unfortunate. But um, the company had created an advertising solution that involved signage on the top of taxis. So you know how when you, when you see taxis and a lot of times there'll be an ad displayed on the top. Yes. What his was, was, a, was an LED lighted advertising board, and the ad could change depending on where the taxi was, so it was geolocated. So for example, if you're Miller Coors and you want to advertise one of your brands, you could have the language of the ad change as the cab was driving through different neighborhoods. So it's, it's really interesting. If you're a local business, like say Benny's Chop House, which is downstairs, you might not want to be advertising in Lincoln Park because it's too far from you. But you could have that ad while it was driving around your block and people could see it right at the point where you know, they were ready to go have lunch. So it was a neat idea, but complicated in model. It was one of those things where it, it felt like it would work really well at scale. But how you test it is tricky because if you only have 50 cabs driving around with the ads, is that enough to really saturate the consumer's mind enough to get any action? 
And so we didn't really know, but the goal was to put enough money together to get 100 boards installed and then sign some contracts with advertisers and sort of do a pilot and see what was going to happen. But it involves multiple parties, right? So you had the taxi drivers, you have the manufacturer of the, the boards, you had the advertisers who needed to sign contracts, and then you had the funding source that was needed to make the whole thing come together. And like I say, he had each one of those pieces at different points, but not, not all together. So he eventually abandoned the idea and, and took a job and moved to Tennessee. But he'll do something else. I mean, he, he, he worked really hard at it. A lot of stick to and creativity. So I would love to know your insights about what, what are some good traits that you've seen from students in terms of their progress or, or, or what they naturally have or need to develop in order to be successful? And what have you noticed are some, some downfalls or some things that could be improved? Yeah, so I have some really strong opinions that relate to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in general, not necessarily students, right? Students would be just one segment of that. You know, one of the things that we know is that the cost of getting companies started, especially in the software area, have come down so far so fast that it enables a lot of new ideas to get out there. And that's really great. So there is a Forbes article that I know I'm, I always mention in class because I found this so interesting that estimated the cost of getting a software solution from kind of concept to MVP, actually building the first version. Uh, in 2007, that cost $600,000 to get from point A to point B. By 2012, that was down to $50,000. And of course, this is five years ago, so it's fallen a lot more even since then. And a lot of that, most of it, has to do with the cloud. Because before there was the cloud, you know, you had to buy servers to, to host your own software, which meant you had to have a space for them, you had to have people who understood them. There was very little in the way of open source software available, which is another factor. And so you were actually building most of the pieces that went into your, um, to your product. So Shopify, for example, which you know, I think you were using Shopify, I mean, that didn't exist you would have to build out your own shopping cart. Even payment functionality like PayPal didn't exist. So my partner at Sarah Ventures, Rob Schultz, was part of a team that, uh, that built a small business productivity software suite in the late 90s. And he says it was $2 million to get their product built. And, you know, and again, the PayPal is an example. They had to build their own, their own payment functionality. So that's a good thing in that it's enabled a lot of ideas to get out there. But the downside to that is that it's enabled a lot of ideas to get out there, which means it's really hard to carve something that's defensible out of that. And so that's one of the keys that I look for as an investor is what's defensible about this product. Is there, you know, is it really hard to build? And you look at some things and they are really hard to build. Um, is, is there value in the platform in and of itself? Is it, is it constructed in such a way that it would have value to an acquirer, and I was an investor in a business where that was, that was what got us out of the deal and enabled us to make some money because we weren't able to prove the market out. Um, or is there real IP? And a lot of the, the companies that I'm most interested in today have you know, hard science behind them where there's, there are patents and other kinds of you know, real protection that, that build a little bit of a moat. So I think that's hard. The other thing is that because there are so many solutions that are targeting kind of the same pain, 
you end up with a very bloody and expensive fight over customer acquisition. So, so the money piece has shifted from creating the product, which used to cost a lot and now doesn't, to acquiring the customers, which costs exponentially more than it used to. And I think that's very difficult and is something that a lot of, of young, first-time, new entrepreneurs don't really understand. And actually, any first-time entrepreneur. They don't really have a sense for how hard it's going to be to acquire those customers. And you get a few early adopters and everyone's all excited about that and, it's, and it is good. But you have to be thinking farther ahead as to you know, what's really out there on the customer acquisition front. So I think that's, that's number one. You know, number two is that because of that, you're going to have to be, be willing to work hard over a long period of time, go through periods of near death, and come up with plan B and plan C when plan A doesn't work out. And I know I've, I've invested in some companies and every investor I talk with has done the same thing where you know the entrepreneur was great as long as things were, were rolling ahead the way they were supposed to. And as long as money was there and people were liking it. When they started to run into challenges, it becomes then very easy to say, well, you know what, I have a great skill set. I can go get a job over at big consulting firm or big company here and there and and they are more than willing to walk away from that so we're really focused on looking for people who are so passionate about this thing they're doing that they're really willing to ride the roller coaster through some very unpleasant moments and that's hard it's hard to find i saw damon john speak and it was about the jockey yeah the jockey and the horse yeah and obviously it's not one or it's right. not binary it's one right. or other but right. if you had to what is your opinion on that or definitely the jockey so what's a what's a what's a good jockey um in in practice as you're moving forward the jockey is somebody who who is willing to attempt a lot of different angles at solve for solving the problem but who is also realistic enough to admit when there may not be a problem there to be solved or just may not be a big enough problem that you can really build a business around it. And then the question is, what do you do with that knowledge? And sometimes you've actually uncovered a more interesting problem through that process. So I was an investor in a company called Fee Fighters, which came out of Booth and which originally was a, an auction, reverse auction site for business services. So we started with credit card processing and a lot of small and medium sized businesses are paying a lot for credit card processing, particularly compared with bigger companies. So what we did was we provided a platform where they could enter their information and credit card processors would bid for that business because the economics of their end of it mean that they can, can be very aggressive on price and still make a lot of money off of these small customers. So it seemed like a great idea and it was a great idea in concept, but there were execution issues that we couldn't control down the line and so it became very difficult to actually generate the kind of volume that we needed however along the way the team learned a lot about credit card processing and in a lot of the dysfunctionality in that industry and so what they did was they pivoted to to start building uh you know a platform technology to become a credit card processor and that was actually a much more interesting business model um, and ended up being acquired by Groupon, which saw the technology we build, and they said, hey, you know, we've been trying to figure out how to enter that 
market ourselves, let's come in and buy this technology. So that was, you know, we, and we made some money. Um, it wasn't a huge home run, but it was certainly a successful outcome for the investor and for the, you know, for the team. So that was good, but it certainly wasn't the business that we started out with. It just, it, it just enabled them to find a more interesting business. So I think, I think good entrepreneurs are sort of on the lookout for that learning and the where can we take this thing, you know, not just continue driving down the same road if it's not going to work. What have you noticed is a, a general trend among the students in New Venture Launch? Um, I think it's the students at Kellogg in general. A lot of times the students are, are you know, focused on consumer-facing businesses. That seems to be far more prevalent than a B2B kind of a focus. They are generally focused on the demographic that they know. I was just pointing out to someone to, uh, the other day who's interested in taking the class in the fall that you know we are the 1% and there's a really big section of the population out there that we don't understand and that our inclination is not naturally to target. So if you're gonna do B2C, maybe we should be thinking about uh, a more mass kind of a market and what their problems might look like. Uh, but I tend to, to find a lot more value in B2B, just in general, right? If, if you're solving a business problem, there tends to be an ROI and a decision maker, and you still need to figure out what sort of priority ranking they're going to give this solution. But that's a different sort of analysis as to whether you're trying to figure out whether you can acquire individual consumers at scale, which is just hard and expensive, you know, pretty much any way you slice it. So I'd encourage more students to look for a B2B kind of a problem that they can, can craft a solution to. But you know, part of what we're trying to do is really understand financial viability of the model you know, via a drill down on the unit economic model and really starting to think about how much it's going to cost to acquire those customers. And, you know, and once you do that, I think then that drives some real thoughtfulness about is this a model that's that's really sustainable or not, and if not, what can we do to improve the economics of it? And that's the whole point of the class, really, is to, to start thinking about those pieces. I, I personally, I really enjoyed the, the class, and it was such a, a different model for a class where you're meeting together every other week, yeah. and the following or the subsequent weeks, you're having a one-on-one -on -one session with you and with your students, and I know that's, for you, that's being here and then going to Evanston yeah. and doing all that. But it was, I, I liked it. It was very different and it was, because it keeps you, you have a you have to present something every week to present my updates. Yes. And so it keeps you moving. And when yeah. I took class with Professor Darrow, same thing every week, we started with highs and lows and you could tell very easily who didn't really do anything right. because they repeated the high or the low from last week. Oh, like, right. I see that. Yeah, I think by the time the teams get to launch, they're pretty focused on moving the ball forward. And you know what I, what I try to tell everyone during our first meeting is this is really about you and your business. Because if you don't move the company forward, you know, nothing's going to happen to me. But you know, if this is a goal that you have, let's try to figure out how we can execute as far as we can get in 10 weeks. And so I think the students pretty much self-select to that. And you know, and make good progress. Plus, I, I you know, the teams kind of get competitive, right? As Kellogg teams do, and I don't think people want to show up showing no progress when other teams are doing well. 
from the, the student people side, what's, what's your favorite thing? The way the class is organized, where I get to meet with the teams one-on-one -on -one every other week, to me, that is just so much fun because I actually get to know everybody. Um, I'll tell you the hard part is when the quarter ends and suddenly I'm not meeting with them every week anymore. And the, the second time I taught last fall, a couple of the teams after the, their final pitch said, what do you mean we won't, we won't come meet with you next week? And I said, well, you know, the class ended, but I really hope you stay in touch. But I'm not used to that because, you know, I do a lot of mentoring, but there, there typically isn't an end point to the relationship. So it's a little weird. There's a bit of a withdrawal after the end of the quarter when I, I don't know what's going on with everybody. So it's coupled with not only having your, your actual daughter go off to college, <laughs> but every quarter you have to deal with having 12 or whatever other kids yeah. leave, leave yeah. the nest. Yeah. There you have it. That's Professor Karen O'Connor of New Venture Launch. Not only do you get funding to use for your startup, but each week you get a one-on-one -on -one session with her to create and go over your timeline of deliverables for the quarter. You get to practice pitches and drill down into your finances. It's the final class in three series installment and really made for those that are serious about pursuing their idea. I'm John Lee from Kellogg's EBC Club, and until next time, keep dreaming. <laughs> I usually do the editing, the post-editing later, but it'd be funny. That's Frau, Frau O'Connor <laughs> talking about how to make people who come to her and say they want to make be $40 million value again. Right. And making them $40 million That's right. again. <laughs>